0: The pastor I served alongside when I first entered the ministry, his name is still because he's with Jesus now, but it is Jim Conley. He was a Texan by birth, the son of a gambler. That was always a fascinating thing, just to hear his life story, and it was pretty rough in the early years, but um, what a man that we loved and admired, and it was a real privilege to be alongside him, but also underneath him as of newlywed youth pastor, and um, Kristen and I look back on those years, and those are really good years in many ways, but I I can still picture him coming out of his office door, and my office was right across the hallway, and he'd just stand there, and he'd look at me, and he'd say, the whole world is crazy except you and me, (laughs) and I got doubts about you. (laughs) I thought he was a wise man. We are crazy. The world is crazy. And it generates a genuine frustration and fear within us. What do we do with all of this? How do we navigate this? Where, where do we go? What, what possible sanity might be left for us? You know, the stories that God has included in the Old and the New Testament are designed to connect us to real people who just lived in a different age, but the world was no different in those days, you're mistaken to think that, you know, 50, 100, 500, or 1,000 years ago, life on planet Earth must have been better. No, it wasn't. It got wrecked and ruined in the Garden of Eden. When when Adam sinned, the whole world was plunged into darkness and difficulty, and the groaning began, and we're still groaning in this present day and age. But the stories of the Bible are intended to connect us to real people who, though dead and gone at this point, were struggling the same way that you were. And so last week we had, as it were, the prologue to this little Christmas series. The, The big title is Women of the Nativity. Uh, But last week, we looked at the genealogy from Matthew 1, which it's so easy to just blitz over that. But the whole point of Matthew summarizing the genealogy of Jesus Christ is to remind you of what you've been reading for many months, if you're on an annual reading plan or just through the years of the Old Testament. And person after person after person who's included in that genealogy is struggling, is sinful, is failing, is looking for Jesus. And so that was really the big point. It's a genealogy of grace. Every person in that family tree needs Jesus to come and be their personal savior. And we looked last week at this glorious truth that Jesus is not afraid. He's not intimidated by his family uh, ancestry. As a matter of fact, he, he happily entered the world into that genealogy. And it's evidence to you and me that if he wasn't afraid to identify with scoundrels and failing sinful people previous to his arrival, then he's not going to be intimidated by you and me who come after his first arrival. What a savior. But now we come to the women of the nativity. And in Luke's gospel, he tells the story uh, of several people, they're all woven together. But as you can see from the screen, we want to look at the life of Elizabeth, and there are several things that I want to capture. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Luke 1. If you're using one of the Bibles there from the seat rack in front of you, this portion of the New Testament can be located on page 855. Don't ever be ashamed of the fact that some of you are new to the faith, new to the Bible. You may say I've heard of the Luke Gospel before. I don't know where that is. Um, it's New Testament. It's the third book of the New Testament, actually, and if you're using one of those Bibles, page 855. Now, I'm going to read selections of this first chapter. Some of you looked at it and say, wow, 80-some verses here. It would take us about eight and a half minutes to read it in in its entirety, but I'm going to just draw out uh, the portions that deal with Elizabeth specifically. So go to verse 5 as I begin reading. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, I'm going to summarize the next several verses. as priest had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to enter the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy of place, representing the entire nation of Israel, and perform a very sacred priestly duty. And while he's in there, the angel Gabriel appears to him and begins to speak to him. Now, that would traumatize you if you were a priest. I mean, that's not supposed to happen. And, and I'm thinking that Zachariah's first thought was, oh, I've really messed up that an angel has appeared. But the angel has a really special message and says, Zechariah, you and your wife are going to have a son. And he's so, he, he's so astonished by this and struggling to actually believe this, that the sign that the angel gives him is says, you're not going to be able to talk uh, until the son is born. And even, even chides him just a little bit because Zechariah was, was hesitant to believe. But we'll, we'll understand more of why it was so hard for Zechariah to believe. But it's not Zechariah's story we went to explore this morning. It's Elizabeth. So now go to verse... Uh, 24, because the Bible has just told us that when he completed that priestly service, he went to his home. Verse 24 says, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach, or that is, take away my disgrace from among people. Now again, we want to skip over a few verses where the the birth of Jesus, where Gabriel comes to Mary, and that's summarized. And we'll come to that in the next several weeks as we look specifically at the life of Mary. But now go to verse 39. In those days, that is in the days where uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah have conceived a son, in the days where Mary was learning that she would bear the Christ child, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now skip to verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they, that is, Zechariah and Elizabeth, came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Let's pray one more time. Lord Jesus, as we open this sacred, holy, God-breathed word it is with expectation that we will hear your voice in our souls and know your truth. Would you please give us insight and understanding because your word explains to us that your truth cannot be discerned just out of our own effort, but it is a spiritual discernment that is required and we need the work of the Spirit to, to glean from this text all that you have intended for us. And I pray, Spirit of God, that you would carry each person far beyond where I, as a messenger, could lead them today. Oh, Lord God, would you guard us and keep us from our own prejudiced thoughts or presuppositions that would would skew the truth or even uh, just block it. I pray that you would defend us from the evil one who loves to snatch away the precious life-giving seed as it is sown into our hearts, and just drive away from this assembly any hindrance whatsoever. Feed us now on your word. Give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll go back to verses 5, 6, and 7 with me, please. And as we read through this portion of the scripture and study together, I want you to notice some things about Elizabeth's context. Uh, The Verse 5 begins with this little phrase In the days of Herod, king of Judea. And I want to just give you a little idea of what was taking place in her day, because again, I said, God gives us these stories that you and I can actually relate. If you dig into history a little bit, you'll find that uh, this was not an easy season for the people of Israel. Luke seems to be intent on recording an accurate account of actual historical events. That's part of the reason he says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. There's no question whatsoever that these were uh, real days with real people. And so this is no, twas the night before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature was stirring kind of story. This is the kind of story that you and I are living out every day. Or some days are really difficult and the suffering is intense and our questions are huge, the future is uncertain, and we're, we're probably talking around the year 6 BC. And we need to know that Herod was not a Jew, he was an Idumean or Edomite. He had been appointed governor by Rome. Israel is occupied by an enemy nation at this particular point. And this is shortly after Herod had put to death two of his sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, and 300 of their supporters. You see, Herod is a very paranoid man. He's fearful, and he's wicked, and is evil. It is a third son, Antipater, who probably even at this moment is plotting his father's assassination and overthrow. So Herod at this particular moment is old, he is weak, and as I mentioned, he is paranoid. It's a dark time, yet it is the very time, kind of time that Moses predicted would characterize the arrival of Shiloh. There's a great prophecy in the book of Genesis that I'll just mention. You can go search it out on your own and look at it more closely. But in Genesis 49, 10, about 1,500 years before this, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had recorded, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. That has reference to the Messiah and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, that's the prophecy, but the day in which Elizabeth lives doesn't seem to be a likely day that this will be fulfilled. It's kind of like the way some of you patriots feel about our own nation. It's just in such a rapid state of decline, there's just no hope that we'll ever be restored to days of glory. Well, lay aside your patriotism for a moment and focus actually on eternal things that are of an even greater importance. And maybe some of what you feel in your heart would capture a little bit of the national stress that Elizabeth and others are living with because the political oppression that they were under is, was far greater even than what we know in this country. It's a reminder that it's never been easy to walk by faith. It was also Uh, When you consider Elizabeth's context, she is a woman with a legacy of family service. Did you notice as we read through this, it describes her as one of the daughters of Aaron? Well, he's the first high priest in Israel. And Aaron's line of priesthood had continued to that very day. And she's been given a name, Elizabeth. And, And I just want to touch on this because I do think this is really significant. The name Elizabeth, it's actually a... What we read in the New Testament is just a little variation of the same name of Aaron's wife all the way back in in Exodus. It's a very special name. It's a name that means God is my promise, or God is the one I swear by, or if I could just kind of put it even into a more day-to-day language, God is the absolutely reliable one. But here is where we discover the great tension that Elizabeth is living with. It's the tension between what she knows about God and has even committed her life to, because we read this earlier, and we'll, we'll see it just again and again, that she lives in service to God. It's the tension between all of that, and yet what she experiences from the hand of God. It doesn't match up at this point. Well, there's a second category I want you to think in terms of, and that is Elizabeth's character. First of all, we note in verse 6 that she is righteous before God, she and Zechariah. And, and that righteousness we would characterize with several other words, but submission is the one I want to draw your attention to. Because to be a righteous person means that you, you look at the standard of life, the standard of God's law, as the governing authority in your life. And God is telling us, through the Holy Spirit, as he moved in Luke's heart and mind to record this particular gospel, that here are two people whose lives are ordered according to God's authority, and specifically his word. And if you followed Elizabeth around day by day, you'd see and hear and know that this is a woman who loves God with all her heart, who obeys his word, and who is seeking to serve him faithfully. And so that brings me to a second thought, which... I think the next phrase would point us in this direction. She's an exemplary believer. The words, walking, blamelessly appear. It doesn't mean she's perfect, that there's never one sinful thought or word or action that comes out of her, but it just says if you take the whole of her life, you would would just say, what a godly woman. What a godly husband. Both of them are characterized. And again, it points us to the authority. It's the commandments of God, the statutes of the Lord. Those are the things that God has spoken and then recorded for us that we might know how he thinks, what he loves, what he hates, what his will for us is. And here's a woman who says, that's what I'm living for. Skip down to verse 13. I didn't read this particular passage, but when the angel comes to Zechariah as he's in the holy place, he actually says, your prayer has been heard, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Now, I'm, I'm doing this next thing by extension, but I think it is consistent with the text that she and her husband are praying people. And specifically, no doubt, they have prayed for a son or even children through the years, uh, but the, the whole momentum of her life, and everything that is spoken of here just shows us this is a woman of godly character. And then the fourth thing, if you'll go uh, all the way to verse 41 again, when Mary comes to visit her, remember we saw that the the Spirit of God filled her, and actually she began to prophesy. She's a Spirit-led woman. And Elizabeth testifies in this paragraph in the most personal and powerful way that her faith has been resting in the coming Messiah, rests in Him, and now rejoices to hear that Messiah will be born. And that's the testimony of every true saint. It was the testimony of everyone included in that genealogy that we looked at last week. They're all looking to the Messiah, all trusting that He will come. And from David to Elizabeth to Thomas, who at the end of this gospel, all all of these saints see him and say, he is my Lord and my God. I pause right there, and even looking over those characteristics, I mean, would those be words that people would use to describe you? Are you an individual who is submitted to the lordship and authority of the God who created you and the Savior who died for you? If they followed you around from day to day, though you would say, well, I'm not perfect. Well, we're not looking for perfection. But would they say, no, there's consistency there. This is a person who is exemplary. Would they see that you're an individual who prays frequently? And would they sense that the Spirit of God is in you, particularly the words that you speak, just have this sense of, wow, God is in that. She's a woman of godly character, and yet, this brings us to, I think, the heart of the story. She's a woman in conflict. We read of it. Go back to verse 7, where there it tells us she had no child. Did you catch in verse 25 that she calls this my reproach? That's a word that could also be translated disgrace. My question is, who called it a disgrace? Did she define it in this way? We know that the larger community viewed it as such. There are even some passages in the Old Testament where God sometimes says to people that his discipline will come in many different forms, and childlessness is one thing, and I think people filled in too many blanks with that. Because while it may be, it's not always that way. And we know this because a woman like Elizabeth, who uh, by, the, by the testimony of God himself has been righteous and blameless. But she feels this. She bears a unique sorrow and shame. Each time Zachariah or someone else Speaks her name, which again, remember, means God is my promise. God is the absolutely reliable one. And she's reminded of that truth, but yet she looks at the barrenness, her inability to bear a child, and probably feels that great tension. How can this be? Every time she attends the Sabbath gathering at the synagogue and sees the other mothers arrive with children in tow, she's reminded, not for me. This is her reproach. I know, I know that some of you can relate to this a little too personally even. And you would even understand not just the tension that she feels, but even how that, that disgrace begins to define who you are. And many of us have defining disgraces, if you will. It may be that you unexpectedly lost your job in a really horrific way and the exit interview was just degrading, discouraging. And some of you could think back to maybe a personal evaluation or review that was years ago. And though you may have experienced great success since then, it's that moment of disgrace that still just haunts you, plagues you. You feel like it defines you. Maybe it's a failed marriage. Maybe it's a miscarriage. Maybe it's a wayward child or a chronic illness. There are a thousand examples of those defining disgraces, as I would call them. And I suspect that if you caught Elizabeth... On some particular days of the week that even if you said, oh, Elizabeth, you're such an encouragement, you know, your life of righteousness and blamelessness has encouraged so many people, she'd basically say, thanks, but I don't care. I just want a child. doesn't tell us how many years that she had wrestled with that, but then the next thing we read in verse 7 is that they were both advanced in years, and even Gabriel in verse 36 uses the words old age to describe them. It makes me wonder if they had just resigned themselves as a couple, though they no doubt had prayed for a long time. Because, again, remember, Gabriel says to Zachariah, your prayers will be answered, you will have a child. But, you know, realistically, isn't this just a human reality? Don't you reach a point where you say, you know what, we're beyond that. This is just the lot in life that God has given us. So here's an elderly, elderly couple with no prospect or hope for a family of their own living under the weight of a cultural disgrace that is not of their doing it hardly seems fair does it now if elizabeth had been a really wicked woman we'd read that story and be like well of course it's what she deserves but a righteous woman a blameless woman a praying woman a serving woman Some of you struggle in great ways right now. Some sorrow or disgrace that you you bear may be tied to a past event or circumstances even of this moment that are beyond your control, but something that is with you day after day and even some of you have lived into your old age now and you just think, will this reproach ever be removed? But one of the great points of the story is that God is the absolutely reliable one. He really is the only one by whom you and I could swear. And we have to live by faith in Him. Because faith in circumstances never fulfills ultimately. Faith in the opinions of others, their praise or their criticism. I mean, you could, you could put your faith in a thousand different places, but if it's not in the, this God who is absolutely reliable, you are going to be profoundly disappointed. I will be profoundly disappointed. And I would also encourage some of you who say, but I have prayed. So had they. But don't ever mistake a delayed answer to prayer or even a temporary pause while you uh, while you wrestle with how is God answering this prayer, don't, don't ever mistake those delays for a non-answer. You know, the, the kind of ignoring children have faced this. I faced it as a child, and my kids faced it in the same way. You know, when you go and you make an appeal uh, to mom or dad, and, and they give you that answer, well, we'll talk about it. It's like, yeah, just tell me no, <laughs> or well, we'll see. You're like, Dad's not going to see. He doesn't want to tell me no. And we sometimes feel like we go to God with answers to prayer, and, and it's our imagination, but it's like, you know, with your spiritual eardrums, as if you hear God say, mm, we'll see. But God is not that kind of father. And sometimes he looks at your life and mine, and his perfect plan for all of it, and, and wants us to come to terms with the fact that he's never in a hurry. But he's never indifferent either. And some of you have prayed prayers for many years and actually stopped those prayer, prayers. Because you reached a point, maybe like Elizabeth and Zachariah, where you said, well, well now we're just too old, the opportunity is gone, or the resources won't be there any longer. So I guess God was saying no. And God was never saying no to them. He's actually just working an even greater plan, a more glorious story than they could fathom. And that's one of the things I love about the Scriptures is that this God, who is absolutely reliable, not just delivers an answer, but always makes it bigger and better than you could fathom. And so that's what positions Elizabeth and her husband and the larger community for a blessing they could never really expect. And so this is the last part of this study for this morning. Elizabeth's blessing. Go to verse 24. Zachariah comes home. He can't speak, but apparently communicates to her some of what had happened. And, and look at verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. There's a lot loaded into that, isn't there? Maybe she, like some of you, is like, I'm not telling anybody. i Pregnancy test came back positive, but, mm, well, after five months, there's going to be undeniable evidence. But listen to what she says. Thus, the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. Let's pause right there and and look at that for just a moment. That, That little phrase, looked on me, means God took notice. And that's a point we all wrestle with, isn't it, as we pray and we don't get the response or the answer or the circumstance don't, don't change or the difficulty doesn't suddenly vanish. God, are you there? Are you listening to me when I pray? Are you watching what's unfolding? Why would you allow me to remain in this darkness? Why would you allow me to remain in this, in this season of suffering? Why would you allow these things to continue? Where are you, God. Again, old age, is she 60, is she 70, is she 80? I mean, who knows where she is and how many decades have elapsed. But now, God acts in such a miraculous and an extraordinary way, and it is evidence that he's always taken notice of her, not just in this moment like, oh, Elizabeth, I forgot about you, but he's actually been working a plan all along. And you and I must be sure of this, and we take it not because our circumstances will verify it, or even because our own soul will verify it within ourselves, but because God's word reveals it again and again and again, that God really does take notice of his people. So that's the nature of this very personal blessing. She says, God took notice of me but it's also a a public blessing from God. Look at verse 25. The next phrase, she says, he has taken away my reproach among people. So the the community that she was a part of, many of whom were so self-righteous, it just grieves us, who probably did say, oh, she must have done something really bad early on that God never gave her a child. All kinds of things that, that we could imagine that would fit the cultural context of the day. But it has amounted to a public disgrace for her to bear. But now she says God's taken it away. And you know something? To go back to the, that defining disgrace that I touched on a moment ago. Some of you feel like, you know what? I got family or friends or the neighborhood I live in or whatever it might be. People who will never let me forget how I blew it. I mean, it's not even a made-up disgrace. It's a real disgrace from your past. But from God's vantage point, that's not what defines you. We've been looking for several weeks at things like God's forgiveness and the gospel. His grace is actually what defines you. He's called you to be a new you. And if I can take it back to the cross for for a few minutes, as we were looking at not long ago, when Jesus died on the cross, the old you died with him. The old you went into the grave with him. And when he rose from the dead, even as his physical likeness was different and there was glory about him that was not previously evident, so spiritually speaking, a new you came out. Others may not see it right now or believe it, but you rest your heart right there. Through Jesus, your disgrace has been removed. And that defining disgrace will never be what God assigns to you. So don't let others talk about you. Don't let what they think about you trouble your soul. There is a powerful blessing of God that comes through Jesus, and and Elizabeth is just beginning to experience that. Look at verse 57. The time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Isn't that sweet? And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. Typical Jewish procedure. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. Do you know what the name John means? God is a gracious giver. Now, that's a marvelous testimony. And yes, Gabriel told them the boy's name will be John. But you can see Elizabeth is fully committed to this because as the realities of who her God is and what he is doing just percolate deeper and deeper into her soul over those nine months before this boy is born and even in those first eight days before they would take him uh, for his circumcision More than ever, she is persuaded not only that God is the absolutely reliable one, but he is gracious in all that he gives. And I wonder if Elizabeth would say, you know, even those long years of childlessness, that really difficult disgrace that I bore in the community, which hangs like an ugly backdrop, but that's what makes God's gift at this moment so spectacular. It's a miracle that I have conceived a child, but even beyond this, that God would give me the child that Malachi prophesied long ago, the one who would be the forerunner of Jesus Christ, who one day will lift up his voice and say, prepare ye the way of the Lord. I didn't just get any son. I get that son. Oh, God is a gracious giver. Here's the hard part. You and I live in the in-between time. The full story of your life has not been written. You, you many, many of you, and I, we're all kind of in that dark season of uncertainty. Where's God? What's he doing? Is he hearing my prayer? Will this disgrace ever be turned? Will, will I ever know his true blessing? And, and again, here's another story that says, yes, oh yes, friend, brother, sister, trust this God because he's absolutely reliable and he always gives good things, but give him time. And that brings us to the final part. It's not just a personal blessing and a public blessing of God. It's also an eternal blessing through God. Go back to verse 39 with me. The greatest joy of her heart is not that her son, John, will be born or is born, but it's actually in the coming birth of her Savior. You say, how do you, what? Where do you get that? Look at verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Pause there for a minute. I mean, wouldn't you expect these two women to just talk about the blessing that Elizabeth is experiencing? We, we think that they were cousins. Mary, much younger, but nonetheless, relatives. But you know, that's not what's uppermost in Elizabeth's heart, to tell Mary all about her own blessing, the baby who's on the way. The baby who just leaped in her womb. No, We, we continue reading what's uppermost. Verse 43, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, that last verse, Elizabeth is speaking of herself in the third person. Blessed is she. Blessed is Elizabeth who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And she's not talking about just the fact that she has a child who will be born very soon, but rather that Messiah actually is about to come. That's what she's given her life to. She and Zechariah have served faithfully for years, praying faithfully, giving themselves to obey the commands, living in righteousness, living blamelessly before others, but all with a view that Jesus would come And you know, every mother would be tempted to think that a miraculous birth, having a child or children, would be the thing that would complete her life. And you'd kind of even understand if Elizabeth said, with the birth of John, now my life is complete. But that's not actually what she's focusing on, because every mother knows, though children are a great blessing, they never complete your life. Some of you say, tell me about it, they're pulling my life apart right now. But let's broaden that. It's not just moms who sometimes are mistaken and functionally place all their faith in a child to make their life complete. It's human nature to think that people or things or a job promotion or more money or the resolution of some conflict or change in circumstances would complete my life. But there's only one source of completion, and it's Jesus. Jesus. And that's what Elizabeth is looking at this point saying, I am blessed because I see God fulfilling his promise. Jesus is about to come. And so Elizabeth's joy and the blessing of seeing the mother of her Lord tells you exactly where her ultimate hope lies and isn't it interesting how God is bringing us again and again to this theme of His promises? Matt taught a great little series on the promises of God, and God always fulfills them. Elizabeth was focusing on the fact that God had given promises, she had believed in through the years, but even in a very dark time politically, in a very dark life personally, personally where it wasn't always certain. Now she begins to see the certainty of these things, and, and she recognizes God is fulfilling his word. He's absolutely reliable, and he's doing it so graciously. And so here's the thing. If you look at that image on the right side, it looks like a man. We'll say that's Zechariah. But, but where's her faith and hope? Well, I can tell you right now, it's not in Zechariah, because even a godly husband doesn't fulfill the longings A godly woman's heart. Now she has a son, a miraculously born son, because there's no human reason that she and Zachariah should have a child when she could not. That's what barren means. She was not able to have a child. And then they hit old age. They got two really huge biological obstacles together, but God did it. But is that where her fulfillment and faith rest? No, it's not in John. It's actually the second baby in this story who's coming, and that's Jesus, because he actually is God's promise. We read from 1 Corinthians in, in the beginning of the service, as Matt read those, read those verses, I just thought, oh, yes, that's, that, that's it. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Some of you are looking to Rid your heart of that defining disgrace by your own life choices. Maybe you've like doubled down on your religious zeal and and you're more serious than ever about being a really religious, committed person. Sorry, you're not going to be able to redefine yourself out of that disgrace by your religious commitment. You need Jesus. Some of you say, I just feel like I can't shake the past. You need Jesus carried that to the cross. All the condemnation, those handwritten judgments and condemnation that we looked at several weeks ago from Colossians 2, he's the one who's taken it out of the way. You don't have the power to do that. The opinion of other people doesn't matter. Jesus is who you need and what you need. And for those of you who say, you know, I put my faith in Jesus... Days ago, or weeks ago, or years ago. Great, keep, keep it right there. But some of you would also say, but I'm really struggling with why God hasn't answered a prayer yet. He hasn't carried you to the end of your story yet. He has taken note. And Maybe the answer is on the way and it will arrive tomorrow. Maybe you're gonna have to wait another 30 years. Can you trust him? He's reminded us again, he's the absolutely reliable one. Trust him. You be righteous, you be blameless. See, just as God promised, Jesus came the first time, and just as God promised, he will come the second time. And if you think, well, because I don't see God at work or hear him or feel like anything's changing, maybe I should more actively pursue a better job or more money or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse or a different spouse or a remodeled spouse. You know, there are all kinds of things that you could think to yourself might make a difference right now, but ultimately, all of those things will fail you. Jesus is God's promise. So in closing, I want to give you two things. And when, and when we put this phrase, thinking it through, we mean think through the word of God. And here are the two things that stood out to me. First of all, look to Jesus because he is our promise. Stop looking to your stuff. Stop looking to the people around you. Parents, some of you, stop looking to your kids some of you are living vicariously through your kids. Well, I want them to have all the opportunities I never did. Yeah, but you realize you're going to wreck and ruin their life if you try to make them a vicarious savior, because that's what it amounts to. Dads, that's why some of you storm up and down the sideline at their ball games. It's not because the ref really is so terrible or your kid you know, hasn't developed into you know, NFL prospect material yet. It's because you're trying to shake the disgrace of your own failures. Stop it. Look to Jesus. That's just some of what I mean when I say look to Jesus. He is the disgrace eraser. And second of all, live for him. These people are exemplary. We too are called to order our lives according to God's word, righteousness, to live blamelessly. But that's because he is the blessing of life. And there's just nothing else in the world that compares to him. Look to Jesus, live for Jesus. Jesus is our promise. Let's pray together. Father, if even a miraculously conceived child is not intended to be the source of ultimate blessing, then neither are the good gifts that you have filled our lives with. We praise you for the children. We see little ones around here, and they bring us great joy, but not one of them can save us. We praise you for the good gifts of material possessions and property and the capacity to buy groceries and warm beds to sleep, and all those material things are such good gifts, but they are not ultimate because they cannot rescue us. From the disgrace of our sin. And so we look to Jesus. I pray for that soul that wrestles right now, some with even believing that Jesus has loved them, does love them, would love them. Some wrestling even at the point of saying, maybe my sin is not that bad. Maybe I don't really need a Savior as much as some are saying, oh Lord God, would you give faith and grace? to every person here, to believe all that you've revealed about yourself. And today, you've reminded us again, you are the absolutely reliable one. So Spirit of God, take your word. Cleanse us. Wash us with it. Adjust our thinking by it. Immerse our weary souls in it. Empower our wills to act upon it. Just don't leave us as we are. Would you pray for just another moment? Will you submit your heart to this reliable God today? Will you renounce all the ways that you have tried to find fulfillment apart from him? Some of you have made idols of your children or another kind of relationship. Some of you have made idols of an ideal life that you thought you would have, but that's not what God has given you at this moment. Will you turn away from those things? And turn to Jesus. Father, do all your holy work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.